0: welcome to gradcast the official podcast of the society of graduate students at the university of western ontario coming to you from the other london let's start the show hello everyone welcome to gradcast coming to you live from wugsom 2016
1: oh yeah the western university graduate symposium on music is that right all right
0: all right we got it and we've been graciously invited here to talk and interview a few of our uh, esteemed speakers coming to Western for today. I am your host, Tristan Johnson, and I'm here with... I'm the other
1: guy, Yimin Chen. And as our first guest, we have Mary Blake Bond.
0: Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing well, how are you? All right, so uh, so Chantel, the person who invited us and made all this happen, set us up with some notes. Talking, about, uh, You're here to talk about... A musical theorist named uh, Hugo Riemann.
2: Yes, that's correct.
0: And scientific fiction. So let's uh, start with the elevator pitch. Uh,
2: Well, yes. So um, the full title of my paper is uh, The Other Dominant, The Subdominant as Scientific Fiction in Music Theory Before and After Riemann. Uh, So if that all sounds like Greek. Basically, when you learn to play an instrument, the piano, the guitar, whatever, you often learn three chords first, one, four, and five. If you're in C major, it would be C major, F major, and G major. And we often, they're called tonic, subdominant, and dominant. We often like to assume that the subdominant and um, the dominant, or the four chord and the five chord, are equivalent. But if you look back into 18th and 19th century music theory, that equivalence has with it a complicated history. uh, Chantal, actually, we were, we were talking the other day, and she planted in my head this image of um, if you see a duck floating on the water and you see its reflection below, you uh, you somehow like to imagine that they are the same thing, but seeing just the reflection would not necessarily point you back to an actual duck. Well, no, it would. uh, Whereas seeing the actual duck might not point you to its reflection. In other words, the the subdominant is not really equivalent to the dominant. But in Riemann's theory, uh, pretending that they are this way um, serves as a very useful framework for many of his theories.
0: Okay, so we have a lot to unpack with that. (laughs) Uh, So what use does having uh, treating these two chords or notes as dominant actually accomplish?
2: Well, Riemann is fascinated with the idea of harmonic dualism. In other words, he likes to imagine that tonal space is completely symmetrical um, and basically that chords can be right side up or upside down, specifically that a minor chord is just an upside down major chord. Um, so, So for this reason, he wants... Uh, all of harmonic space to work that way, including the three primary chords in any key, um, and he ultimately uh, starts to move from a diatonic, in other words, just uh, you know a major scale, um, from that conception of tonality to a fully chromatic conception of tonality. So you know, using all of the white keys and the black keys. Um, 12 possible pitches instead of seven and the, the symmetric framework of the subdominant tonic and dominant does allow him to do that. Excellent.
0: And what's your take on it?
2: Oh, well, I absolutely think that, um, Riemann's, uh, Riemann's theory is very valuable for us still today. I I talk later in the paper about David Lewin, um, a theorist who passed away in 2003, but he was the founder of a branch of music theory called transformational theory. And that symmetrical thinking and that willingness to embrace a kind of fiction that can be used as a logical crutch to uh, get to a useful conclusion, um, that's very prevalent in Lewin's thinking. All right.
1: So, talking about these conclusions, um, having absolutely no background in musical theory, what might this mean in terms of something we could hear, something in performance, perhaps?
2: Uh, Yeah, well, in in Riemann's theory and in Lewin's theory, there's a lot about... um, uh, I think some people think that music theory is just about describing music, but they both work to uh, really get at what we can hear if we are willing to imagine. So they do, uh, to, to put it uh, briefly, uh, Riemann's function theory and, and Lewin's transformational theory really do just allow us to uh, fully experience a piece of music in a different way than just a, a first hearing, an uncritical hearing would, would allow.
1: So to be able to like, identify different parts of it, different perspectives on a yes, piece? Yes,
2: definitely. And, and also to, uh, especially, uh, Western music tends to be written in multiple voices. In other words, several parts happening at the same time. So okay. for that reason, you don't hear everything the first time you hear a piece of music. So theories of music are very useful for allowing you to hear a piece differently a second and third time.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Mary Blake Bond, for coming and talking to us. Thank you for having me. And we're back after a brief break, and we are here today with Kyle Hutchinson, PhD student, talking about harmonics, harmony, harmony. Yes, uh, chromatic are those harmony. Those different things. Okay. Um, so, so let's get let's get started. What is the like the elevator pitch of your research?
3: Um, that there's. Extended chromatic works in the late 19th century and early 20th century that we don't really have theories for understanding the you know pitch structure, harmonic structure for, and I'm trying to find ways to extend how we look at earlier works, so like Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven, um, extend that to Wagner, Mahler, and Strauss.
0: Excellent.
4: So, Kyle, your your presentation has an interesting sort of op- opening title. When when is a triad not a triad? uh w- well what's the answer?
3: Well, in the context of this particular paper it's when it's functioning as a diminished seventh chord and um, what does that mean <laughs> um, so a triad is a fairly stable um, a fairly stable sonority um, but um, in context, there are certain cases I suggest where the voice leading and resolution of the chord um, indicates that it's functioning as a chromatically altered diminished seventh chord, which is an unstable sonority. So that, instead of hearing it as structural and stable, we can hear it as related to the chord that
4: follows instead.
0: Ah, yes. I remember that as the one that sounds vaguely uncomfortable when you play it.
4: It's the the train tracks one. It is the train tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: So so out there, uh, for the people out there, what would be the function of using a diminished seventh chord in, say, a piece? Like, what are you trying to convey with it?
3: Um, Usually it conveys as we said, the train tracks like you know, unease, evil. Um, in these cases, it doesn't function maybe quite as much like that. It's, it's more of a structural phenomenon um, that it's functioning this way. We hear it, you know, when the chords sounded phenomenologically, we hear it as a triad, but when it resolves and we think, okay, the, the resolution of that is more indicative of the diminished seventh chord function.
4: And you look at music um, from Brahms and Wagner. Do you find that this kind of thing that you're talking about, these um, sort of abundantly chromatic or tense chords, happen a lot in that kind of music?
3: Yeah, and Strauss too, and Mahler.
0: And, and what's the, what function are they using? What are they trying to create by doing this in their, in their music? Like what is their artistic I think it's endeavor? trying to
3: extend kind of the chromatic the harmonic syntax beyond you know the relatively diatonic so chords that are in a single key Mm -hmm. trying to extend it further often there's also maybe some sort of dramatic function because a lot of wagner is theatrical um, because he wrote mostly operas Um, with strauss too he wrote operas and tone
0: poems so so they're trying to expand past maybe like what they felt might have been limits about working within the keys or working in yes okay can you go more into that
3: I mean, you know, if you think of Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, generally speaking, they stay relatively close to a single key. So if you you're in C major, you'd find, you know, you find with Mozart and Haydn you don't digress too far away from that, and if you do, it's easily relatable, you know, to the key on some sort of secondary level. Okay. But with Wagner and Strauss, um, these digressions become much larger, much more pronounced, much more striking.
1: So if, um, if one of our listeners were to want to find an example of what you're talking about, can you, um, maybe off the top of your head, describe a, a place, uh, a piece of music where they might be able to hear this for themselves? Uh, well, um, one of the ones I talked about um, is
3: Tr- Wagner's opera Tristan und Isolde, uh, and specifically the death drink motive, okay. um, where he takes it. It's in C minor. He takes an A major chord, which is not found in the key of C minor, and it resolves um, as a diminished seventh chord of F, which is the fourth scale, uh, fourth scale degree of C minor. Okay, cool. And like, roughly, whereabouts is this in the? Piece? You can find it. I believe it's scene five of Act one.
1: Okay, great.
0: Alrighty. Is there anything that uh, you would like to, compared to like maybe like, to show what's really cool about the research you're doing in the way that you can like so deeply appreciate music for someone who, I don't know, maybe whose musical experience goes to like having a subscription to Apple Music or something.
3: I'm I'm not sure. Maybe this would be quite as, you know, I don't think anyone else with anyone with. Just a subscription to Apple Music might find this that interesting. I mean, I, I freely admit that. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, you know, for those that are curious, maybe to see how the music is structured, um, that there is structure in this music, even though we sometimes, you know, think there isn't or try to pretend that there isn't. All right, Kyle,
0: thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thank you. Take care. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to on 2016. We are here with Rebecca Long. How are you? I'm fine. And you are here today. You're talking about something that uh, is about teaching music students rather than like the dense theory and, and mechanics we've been talking about so far yeah you got a really yeah,
5: nice I, title I, here. I, yeah i can i can go to the dense theory and mechanics you've been discussing thus far but i decided not to this year because i was frankly looking for a little bit of a vacation for my own work
0: <laughs> well you came to the right place so let's let's hear but you're talking you it says here you're talking about mind maps
5: yeah, um, I mean, a lot of people remember them from their child, like, get out the Crayolas, be creative, and, you know, tell me everything you know about cats. Um, I have no idea why cats is my running example today. But, you know, and but they've evolved. We have actual tools, actual digital tools and programs to be able to do this now to where it's easy. You can make maps that would have taken up an entire wall of your house doing it the analog way but it's all nice and compact in there and it's a really good learning tool. Yeah, it's been, it's a real,
0: um, I've noticed it's a a real big fad these days, a really big thing these days, so tell us um, how, have you been able to use it or how you plan on using it for teaching music specifically
5: well there's two ways Um, as an instructor I make maps that my students look through so um, I have one that's for the instruments of the orchestra and introducing them and students will go through they'll see pictures of each instrument and then there's videos you can click on and members of a uh orchestra over in England introduce each instrument and say this is the trumpet and it sounds like this and it's shaped like this and here's you know facts x y and z about it and the advantage is students can watch that as many times as they need to to get the information
1: just uh, from the peanut gallery here—is this inspired in any way by Benjamin Britten's? Um, what was that the young person's? Young person's the guide opera? for the orchestra.
5: Yeah. I I considered using that, but no one has chopped that thing up yet. Okay. To right. do each individual section, and so I found the next best thing, which was a bunch of orchestral musicians talking about their instruments. Cool, and and
0: so. Um is the, like, natural, like, uh, when I think of mind maps, think of, like, you know, uh, categories built on categories, built on categories. How is that useful for understanding, like, not just, like, the sections of an orchestra, but how orchestras work as, like, a team or, like, a unit?
5: Well, from a learning perspective, you can actually put the various instruments in two places. You can either say, here's all the stringed instruments and here's all the brass instruments and blah, blah, blah. Or you could actually put them where they sit in the orchestra. So you could put the conductor on one side of your mind map and then, or have him as the central node and then put the strings where they go and et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And you can kind of get an idea to see, you know, why, how, why do the violins sit next to the clarinetist? Why is that a thing? Why would that work?
4: Um, in your presentation, you also had another way to organize them according to the keys they played in. Can you talk about that? That was cool.
5: Yeah, that, that one's I've got to share with a lot of people later. Um, <laughs> so... A lot of instruments transpose. That means if on my instrument, if I see a written note C, what actually comes out of my horn is a B flat. It's from the way instruments were shaped and physics. And I won't get into it because it's that boring theory stuff I do. (laughs) Um, But so the other way of organizing instruments is by the key that they're in. So you take all of your B-flat instruments and all of your what are called E-flat instruments, and you put them all together, and then you can see, oh, if I'm a young composer or a student and I write this note, then this person's going to play this one, this person's going to play this one, this, and so forth. Oh. That way I don't end up with a clarinet sonata written by a student that sounds absolutely terrible because they don't know the transposition. I'm sure they'll still find a way. (laughs) Oh, no, they will. (laughs) All right.
1: So when you're talking about students here, um, what sort of level or age group are you thinking of?
5: Mind mapping can work for anybody. I mostly tend to think collegiate level students because that's what I teach. Okay. But um, I mean... Anyone that can understand a picture book could arguably understand a mind map. So you could make these for, you know, three year olds because they're often better at using technology than we are anyway. Um.
0: So, like, while you're teaching them the recorder, which I still wonder why we do that, but. Um.
5: Torture. We hate Torture? ourselves. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I live by an elementary school and I can I'm always tell when they get the recorders.
5: I'm sorry. <laughs>
4: Um, and how do you use these mind maps for uh, student collaboration? Do you do that in any ways? Or?
5: Yeah, there's, most of the programs online will allow students to collaborate with each other. So you can edit things in real time, much like Google Docs, if anyone's used that. And so you can basically assign five students who don't live in the same dorm or even in the same city to do a mind map together, and they can do it because they can collaborate from long distance and you as the instructor can look over stuff and kind of look over their shoulder and say uh, that may not be your best idea
0: <laughs> all right excellent thank you rebecca for coming and talking to us mm-hmm. appreciate it hello everybody welcome back we are here now with steven janice who did not do a paper at the conference, as very, as very much told to us by our, uh, our liaison with the conference. But you are chairing an upcoming talk later today.
6: That is correct. Yes, I'm uh, chairing a session. Uh, I should, I should music, probably know text, and type. meter. Music, text, and meter. That's what it is. It's, it's, uh, it's, it talks a little bit about... Uh, sorry? Oh, thank you. Um, basically, uh, music, text, and meter is, is kind of an interdisciplinary approach to music so it's a mm-hmm. little bit different from some of the other talks uh, like the one that you had earlier with with Kyle he focused a lot on just kind of pure music and and this is more about uh, music and and other aspects of of uh media really all
0: right and also it says here that you work with stuff on film music and the underappreciated by people outside of music uh, <laughs> trent resner
6: yeah yeah uh well uh, i actually think i think that's part of why i was i was chosen to chair this uh session because film music like like the spoken word thing is uh is an interdisciplinary uh genre of, of and uh
0: I guess industrial music is inherently a uh, pretty uh, interdisciplinary
6: itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, I and it's funny because I, I didn't really get into Trent Reznor because of Nine Inch Nails or, or uh, you know, like most people would. I'm not an audiophile like that. But I got into him because of his film music, his work with. Uh what movies would that be? Uh, the Social Network, uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and uh, Gone Girl are the three that he's done with uh, David Fincher. So over the last over the last six, six years, I believe, uh, he's been working on those. And he also did some video game music as well for Call yeah, of Duty. I was going to
1: say, I think maybe Quake? Way, way, way back in the day?
6: Uh, I think it was... Uh, Black Ops 2 right. is the one that I'm thinking of. He might have done an earlier one, too. But again, I'm more interested in the film music stuff. So, so.
0: what <laughs> intrigues you about about his uh, film scores?
6: Well, the thing that really intrigues me about Pretend uh, Resner's film scores is because it really uh, plays with the notion of uh, of what your expectations are in, in a film. So as you're sitting there in a film, you're, you're kind of... Uh, your expectations are played with by what you hear. So when you hear an orchestral score, when you hear, you know, Jaws, for example, you hear Donna, 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 you know what's happening, and you might not consciously think about it, but the sound is kind of pointing you in that direction. Yeah. And what Reznor's music does uh, is still follows a lot of the same conventions, but he's using a different uh, a different language. He's using He's using a popular style as opposed to that orchestral score that's been such a big part of the Hollywood blockbuster so I'm really uh, I really feel that that type of music's been neglected um, and and needs to be uh, explored a little bit uh, given more scrutiny in in academics Mm -hmm.
1: okay well what sort of things can we learn from um, looking at say film music what might an appreciation of that add to um, you know the experience of going to see a film
6: Uh, I think it's uh it's it just makes you a more aware consumer, if you will. Uh, okay. That's the biggest thing. Uh, it, it kind of, you know, when you get those tingles on the back of your neck, it, right. it kind of makes you realize why you're getting those tingles on the back of your neck. And you're, you're not thinking, oh, I just, that movie just made me feel weird. You know, it's, it's, you're getting into the technical underpinnings and you're kind of understanding why a certain harmony makes you feel a certain way when it's connected with a certain. Uh, a certain type of lighting or a certain narrative uh, that's, you know, a certain plot point, you know, things okay. like that. So does that mean you also have, uh, you dip your feet into psychoacoustics? Uh, I haven't gotten there yet. I'm hoping to eventually, but it's, uh, like I said, it's an interdisciplinary uh, study. So I have to dip my feet into a lot of, <laughs> a lot of things. So psychoanalysis is where I'm at right now. Psychoacoustics is, is on the horizon. So Stephen. um,
1: we're wrapping up here. Yeah, Do yeah. you
6: have a favorite scene or a favorite mo- uh, moment
1: in a film where you feel like the movie and the soundtrack work together to, you know, create something special?
6: Uh, I think actually the the social network is a is a really great one. I don't know if if you if you recall the the scene kind of in the opening where Jesse Eisenberg's character is kind of stumbling out of that that grad party all rejected, mm-hmm. and then that uh, melodic uh, theme comes in over top like da da dum but it's, there's a lot of buzzing as well, right? And uh, and the the kind of the kind of simple melody that that you can hold on to while there's all this kind of noise and and distortion going on around you i think it really it really represents what the character is going through and i feel like that's a really uh really good example of how trent Reznor's music is is using um a kind of an older convention but he's using uh the sounds that that we know today we don't you know you might hear that kind of stuff on Apple Music.
0: Yeah, Yeah, melody over uh, distortion does sound very Trent reznor Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for coming and talking (laughs) to us. Thank you very much.
1: And we're back. Now, this time with uh, Gregory. Gregory, how are you doing today? Very good. So, you're working on a certain piece by Bach, the BWV 565. Yes. What, what is that?
7: It's the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Yeah? Probably the most famous of Bach's pieces and definitely the most famous piece of organ music ever written. Okay, could you,
1: could you give us an idea of
7: what it sounds like? Yes, it starts with da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da da-da-da, ba I wish I
0: could do the lower part, but that's all I can do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was fun. <laughs> So, All right. So you set out to, to uh, settle an unresolved mystery about this piece, this little snippet of music. Yes. Uh, Bach
7: scholar Peter Williams looked at this piece and said, you know what? It's probably not by Bach. And further, it's probably not actually originally for organ. His theory is that it was a violin piece that Bach or somebody else, and he thinks probably somebody else, transcribed it for organ. In the 18th century, it was common to take music for strings or other instruments and transcribe them for harpsichord or organ or other instruments, and that's how a lot of music made its way from country to country. So
0: let's, let's, so let's unpack the mystery. How did, uh, why do people suspect this? Uh, for Williams, um, <clears throat> two of his concerns are the
7: first notes and the last notes da 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 I'm just one person I can only do it in one octave <laughs> um, but Bach has set it in two octaves both hands play that theme and it cascades down a few octaves and then a lot of the rest of the bit in the, in the opening part of the toccata is two hands playing the same notes an octave apart which is unusual for organ music and the ending has a very strange sound it's dark and heavy mm-hmm. And Williams is looking at other Bach pieces
0: and saying, this doesn't really fit, why doesn't it fit? <clears throat> so it doesn't sound like Bach and it doesn't sound like something that uh, an organ would play. Because like, uh, when I think of this piece of music, like when I think of other organ music, it feels, yeah, it, like most organ music, like, you think of that like, you know, kind of lazy uh, stuff you hear at the beginning of like church or something like that. A little bit. (laughs) It it sounds
7: Mm -hmm. Bach-ish, but certainly for Williams, it doesn't sound Bach enough. Okay. (laughs) Uh, That there's these little details and they're scattered throughout, um, just different textures that Bach doesn't use in other pieces. And some of it sounds like things that you might have a little later. It sounds a little too dramatic. Uh, Sometimes we think of the Baroque period, especially for organ and organ music for church, there can be some fire and there can be some flash, but it's got a certain amount of conservatism to it mm-hmm. and a certain amount of restraint, whether that's piousness or whatever
0: else, but it's there. And this piece seems a bit more like a showpiece. I imagine you have to be very careful with an instrument of that, because, it, I mean, typically like sometimes an organ can be an entire building in size, and so I imagine that you have to be you have to be conservative with how you play with these kinds of things. They're very big, very ornate things. Sometimes. Um, that's why it's really the size of the
7: instrument that makes William suspicious of those opening octaves. When you play one note on an organ, you can have it play one pipe. But that phrase pulling at all the stops, that comes from organ playing, and you've got all these different sounds that you can activate. It's kind of like an orchestra in a box. So you can play that one note, and you can out one stop and have one pipe. You can pull out three other stops, now you've got four pipes. You can pull out ten more and you can have that single note or that single key activate these different pipes at different octaves, at different pitch levels. So there's really seemingly no need to write something in octaves because you can make it in octaves yourself at the organ console.
4: Okay. So Williams is suspicious, what do you think? I'm not as suspicious. How come?
7: (laughs) Uh, I play not as much Bach as Williams does. (laughs) Um, I play a little more of the music before Bach. And in looking at some of that, um, there's Johann Pachelbel. Most people know him from the canon. (laughs) Um, But he has uh, a fair amount of organ music. And there's Dietrich Buxtehude, who is in the north of Germany. Uh, for those who have done the Coles notes music history, this is the guy that Bach walked 250 miles to see. <laughs> oh wow! And Buxtehude has these fiery organ works that have all this sort of flash and and drama in them, in the restrained conservative Baroque sense of <laughs> mm-hmm. sense of drama and flash.
0: So I guess that means that the, uh, the smoking gun has never been found. Like, no one's ever found the piece of music that this is transposed from, if it is. No, for Williams, that smoking
7: gun would be that manuscript with the violin part mm. of that original, which has never been found. So he just assumes it's out there somewhere. Um, but when I'm looking at the older organ music that comes before Bach, I'm seeing some of these same traits that are in the D minor piece by Bach. In these other works especially when those other works are in d minor. It's almost as if there's something about that key in that period that leads composers to making these unconventional and unusual compositional decisions. It's kind of like a, a bit of like a bit of their own little playground.
1: So oh, so this is where the title of your piece comes from, The Curious Case of D Minor? Yes. Cool.
7: <laughs> so there's The Curious Case of Is it for organ? Is it for violin? Other people have looked at Williams' argument and said, I like that. I think he's wrong about violin. I think it's a five-string cello. Or it's a lute. Maybe it's a
1: flute.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So so this one article that Williams first wrote in 81, and then he revised it in... uh, In a book about all of box music in 2003, um, has led some scholars to you to be able to spin out
0: article after article. (laughs) You know, bring up a new instrument, you
7: might have a new article you can publish out of it.
0: This is how uh, there's a new author for Shakespeare's works every few decades or so. (laughs) Something like that, yes. (laughs) All right, Gregory Walshaw, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Really appreciate you telling us this interesting history to finish off on. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.